right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's going on? Derek Johnson here, Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Deadest week in sports. We have the All-Star Game. Um, but yeah, that's about it for the next couple days. Fortunately, though. AU football unable to stay out of the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Story came out over the weekend. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, who uh, we're going to have on as we do every week on Wednesday. So we'll get kind of more with Jesse on this. But this was kind of the lead story over the weekend, at least locally here, that for football player for KU, Caperton Humphrey, he was a former transfer from Eastern Kentucky, came over to KU, basically had some disagreements, arguments, and so forth with a couple other KU football players. And this essentially led to the culmination of all these arguments and disagreements where a bunch of the those players, that those four guys and some others, threatened him and caused him to call 911. And then the resolution was that Jeff Long and Les Miles did a terrible job handling it, which, looking back now, not really much of a surprise there. So... I'm just going to kind of go into the article. I'm not going to give you everything in the article. Please check it out. Give it a click. It's great reporting from Jesse Noel in the Kansas City Star at KansasCity.com. This is where I'll start in the story. They bought him off. That's what they just did. And this is Jamie Humphrey, his dad, telling the Kansas City Star after KU's athletic department agreed to pay him more than $50,000 in benefits to go home after he reported all those previous threats and harassment from teammates that I just mentioned. After Caperton Humphrey said he had an argument with a pair of teammates and the next day discovered someone had loosened the lug nuts on one of his tires. So this is kind of the very beginning here. He filed a police report. When that same feud led to arguments before workouts in a locker room, Jamie Humphrey reported that to a lifelong friend in KU's compliance office and also told him the players were selling drugs. The information was eventually funneled to football coach Les Miles, who, according to Caperton Humphrey, told the players to watch themselves. I mean, that's, first of all, strike one against Les Miles. Didn't do anything about it. Just said, eh, slap on the wrist. Don't do it. So finally, after another altercation in practice, Tensions rose highest at the apartment that night, according to Humphrey. When the police arrived with sirens blaring and after the players and the others had scrambled away, Caperton's mother, Jennifer, could barely be consoled. The family had come from West Virginia to move Caperton out of his Lawrence apartment complex to get away from these teammates, but it was obvious now that wasn't going to be enough. It goes on later in the story. He and his dad said the family requested a meeting with Miles the next day, but it was declined. Miles met with the player Caperton on his own and the four football players without the parents involved. And he asked both sides to apologize and neither side obliged miles. Then according to the two parents said the players would settle their differences on the practice field. This is maybe the most crazy part. The players would settle their differences on the practice field, pitting them against each other, 
head-on in full contract drills. Because you know what? If you can't figure out something diplomatically, Oklahoma drill, you know, that always works. When they're at UN meetings, I'm pretty sure when they come to a 50-50 split on votes about, well, would this be the right thing to do to create peace? They're like, eh, why don't we just line up for the Oklahoma drill? Just hit somebody. That'll help. Unbelievable. Now, as you'd imagine, Jeff Long, Les Miles, uh, David Reed, who's a KU compliance director, KU Athletics, were reached out by Jesse about this story. They didn't respond, as you'd kind of expect. And I don't know about, like, the legality of if he was basically signing a non-disclosure agreement to get the money that was paid for him driving back home and his tuition and all this stuff, which we'll get into here in a bit, if they just can't comment on it. That's definitely a possibility here. But when you go back to when this started, it starts with the car thing. Up to that point, Caperton was a transfer from Eastern Kentucky. Again, he came over as a walk-on, earned his way into a scholarship eventually, played seven games in his first season, one start at fullback. Um, then he got that scholarship, played in all 12 games the next year. He was part of the team's leadership council when Miles took over. And he felt just a wobbly tire driving in his side view mirror. And this was kind of the spark point, as I just mentioned. Um, so after pulling over, he realized the lug nuts were barely, barely hanging on to the point where he was able to rotate each of them with his fingers alone. And he had a suspicion who did this. Previous week, he'd have an argument with football teammates in the apartment below him. And this seemed like a message. Uh, this is what Caperton said. If I was going down the highway in Kansas City or something, that's potentially my pyre, tires pop off. Who knows what happens with the control of the car? That's a life-threatening situation. He called the police, talked to an officer about the incident just before 6 p.m. on February 28th of 2019. Lawrence Police Public Affairs Officer Patrick Compton told the star. Caperton told the officer the teammate he suspected, but there was no evidence, so obviously no arrest was made. Matter obviously didn't resolve itself. There would be more going on. He was challenged, Caperton was, by those same four defensive teammates who all received, to some extent, playing time under Les Miles. He was kind of challenged by them before workouts and in the locker room, and it became so serious that the Humphreys contacted David Reed about that while also communicating that two of those former players were selling pot. And a roommate actually told Caperton that those players had met with Les Miles, and Les Miles told him they needed to be more careful with that activities because they'd been reported to the athletic department, which, again, strike two for Les Miles. I don't even know. This is going to go beyond three strikes. We might get a full inning of outs here uh, with Les Miles. The fact that it was just, hey, you're doing something bad. Don't stop doing it. Just be careful about it, you know? That sounds like my dad when I would, like, go doorbell ditching when I was a 12-year-old. It was like, just be careful. If you get caught, I know nothing about it. It's like, that's that's doorbell ditching. This is a little bit different, Les. So, more on this story. Again, Kansas City Star with Jesse Newell. Please check it out. And I'm not getting to everything. I'm just kind of skimming over some of the important things. Um, you can check out the rest again, KansasCity.com. But a short time later, Caperton retaliated in a fight at practice and swung at a teammate after he was hit first. The dispute intensified to the point where Caperton's family traveled to Lawrence from West Virginia to move him out of his apartment. Caper said on that day, Caperton, he sent his roommate to talk to the guys below. The message, leave me alone and we'll leave you alone. While remaining quiet about some drug offenses, Caperton said he saw out of the apartment window. A few minutes later, those men were banging on his door to be let in, with about 10 people from the group, including the four defensive players, entering his apartment. 
Once there, Jamie said the men called his son racist. Again, Jamie's the dad called his son racist while also taking issue with him being rich. Jamie, who's self-employed in West Virginia, took exception to that, noting Caperton had a black roommate all three years at KU. Caperton's ex-girlfriend, which I guess that'd be as trustworthy of his account as anybody because their ex-girlfriend now, um, she was calming the couple's dog. She told the star that the group was, quote, yelling at Cape and his dad and even his younger brother, saying they were going to beat them up, basically, before explaining Caperton's frustrations built up to the point at KU because of coaches turning a blind eye to some bad stuff these other players were doing and being notified of it then still giving these guys playing time. After about 20 minutes, football players finally left when they heard the police arrive. And according to Jamie, before they left, they said they'd be looking to go after Caperton before practice, during practice, and after practice. Jamie Humphrey, for more than a week, had messaged longtime friend. That's what adds kind of another ripple here. Longtime friend with David Reed, again, the compliance uh, guy for KU, while concerned about his son. Reed, outside of the anonymous report of players selling drugs, spoke to Jamie about not wanting to intervene on Caperton's behalf to coaches while fearing the player would get labeled as a diva. He told Jamie to have Caperton contact KU Director of Player Development, Ed Jones, quote, if he's feeling bullied or having personal issues. That part sounds a lot to me like this was run through Les Miles, maybe even Jeff Long. And Les Miles was like, no, we, we can't get this through. I don't want him to be bullied. I don't want it to mess with my locker room, which if that would be an issue, there's strike three on Les Miles. If it was David Reed concocting this all himself, then that's not great for David Reed. I just, I'll get into this in a little. I just have a hard time believing that David Reed was like the mastermind behind trying to cover this up or trying to get the non-disclosure agreement or whatever you want to call it together. I have a hard time believing the compliance director would be the only one in on this and not getting pushed from others above him. And again, I'm not saying I know one way or another there. I just find it really weird that David Reed would be like the be-all, end-all for answering questions this. Even though he is the longtime friend, how would this not get run through other people? Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It, it just feels odd that it wouldn't be. Three days later and less than 24 hours after Caperton's teammates invaded his apartment, Jamie and Jennifer met with Reed in his office to discuss the latest events. So basically, David Reed says that the departments are all kind of sleeping on it. And then uh, Jamie wrote back, he's at tutoring, but I know he wants them punished for threatening his family, etc. Goes on and Reed, who, keep in mind, he was also on KU's recent search committees to hire new football coach Lance Leipold and athletic director Travis Goff, which... If he had a big part in this, that's obviously very bad that he uh, had a big part in the search committees, helped negotiate a settlement over text messages in the ensuing hours, sending Caperton an email titled Agreement Draft that night. This draft is pending property authority approval and is currently my work alone, Reed wrote. While I'm awaiting the uh, appropriate authorization to execute the document, I wanted to share this with you in order to secure the agreement. So what's interesting here is... You have the portion of this with David Reed. And again, the fact that he has helped in the search committees for the new KU head coach, KUAD. If this would have come out before then, he probably would have not been in those search committees. What I don't know here is I have a hard time believing that he would kind of operate all by himself to figure this out and that it did not go through Jeff Long. That said, again, in that quote on the message, the draft is pending pending proper authority approval and is currently my work alone. So it sounds like it's just him based on that. But again, I have a very hard time believing that Jeff Long with an incident 
this important or less miles or whoever would not at least know about it, would not at least have their hand in this as well. This almost seems like this with Jeff Long to me, like telling David Reed, like, hey, I uh, kind of need you as a scapegoat. Like, I, I can't afford this right now. Like, you say it's your work alone. You deal with it. So I, I don't know what to believe with that. But anyway, um, what followed was the outline of a confidential settlement agreement setting forth conditions, including a non-disparagement clause for Caperton to examine. The deal basically comes down to this. Caperton left Lawrence, took online classes in West Virginia at KU, though, um, and he and his family agreed to not talk about his experiences, basically a non-disclosure agreement. I don't know if legally it's the exact same what they did here. He would continue to be paid his tuition and monthly stipend money from spring 2019 through his expected graduation date in May 2020. The document stated that Humphreys, quote, understand and agree they will not make or publish directly or indirectly any materially negative comments verbally or in writing on social media or in any other form about KU and KU Athletics employees, quote, that might cause an individual to reasonably question that integrity, quality, character, competence, or diligence of the University of Kansas, its athletic department, or its administrators, coaches, faculty, and or staff. The total of this all ended up being a little over 28000 for the tuition. The stipend checks ended up being a little over 18000 and then he got around 5000 out of the money he got back from driving back home to West Virginia. Obviously, this brings up some questions, at least from my end. If this was like an agreement, did the agreement end once he got all his money out of this or once basically his uh, expected graduation passed at the end of uh, what would that have been 2019, the spring of 2019 or no, scratch that May 2020? Like, did it end then? Could they say whatever they want after then? Or are they basically forfeiting that? Are they going to have to give the back their money just to speak their voice here? And if so, that would show the importance of them wanting to get this out there that they would literally forfeit all that money they got back. And, and I don't know how that works again. So the final version was signed in 2019 in April, similar language to the first draft that was sent. Uh, KU was not represented on the document by Jeff Long. Again, it was instead Reed on there, which again, don't know. Like, was this Reed working on his own? Was it Jeff Long basically saying, no, you handle this? Or was it Jeff Long saying, I want, you to have your name on it and you alone because I don't want to get in trouble for this. I don't know. Now, here's something interesting in the Star article. Jesse talked with a former Big 12 compliance director who spoke to the Star with anonymity um, in order so that they could talk freely about the situation. He said, this other Big 12 compliance director, that he had never had a non-disparagement agreement pass his desk during his 20-plus year career in the field while also saying he'd also never signed one on behalf of his athletic department. Quote, what would have given me pause about that is, I don't see a non-disparagement agreement as an athletic matter. That, to me, would be more of a legal matter, which somebody out of the university attorney's office should be handling that. That's just my own personal opinion. That's very interesting. Big red flags over either Jeff Long knew about it and just didn't want to touch it and wanted to make somebody else the scapegoat, or Jeff Long didn't know about it. This guy operated on his own, which would also be really weird. I kind of refuse to believe that. I don't quite understand that portion of it, to be completely honest. It's just weird. And quite frankly, again, going back to that, like that does not seem like an athletic department type of handling, which you go up to the athletic director, and he was the one in control there. And this is why KU has a new athletic director. 
And Travis Goff seems to be good at, you know, avoiding that type of stuff that we had questions about with Jeff Long. The point now, Caperton, um, beyond getting stripped of his opportunity at KU, also is suffering from anger issues, seeing a psychiatrist, and so forth. So it's obviously having a long-term effect on him, and you hope he's okay. I'll say this. I don't know if both parties here are completely innocent. If you want to point your finger at Les Miles, Jeff Long, this was, again, poorly handled for that regime that continues more and more comes out. It seems like that was a continuing trend. But as far as the players, the four players and Caperton Humphrey, I, I want to be careful here because I think there's two sides of the story. And I'm not saying Caperton Humphrey's in the wrong. I'm not saying he's in the right. I'm not saying the four players were in the wrong or the right. I think both sides have certain wrongs that they were wrong about. Like one thing that's not mentioned here is what caused these arguments? What caused these players to dislike each other? You know, was Caperton Humphrey kind of taking out his anger in practice and late hitting players? Was some of these players, were they initiating uh, stuff on the field? Did they just not like each other? Or was there more there? You know, did Caperton Humphrey, again, there was the racism allegation from one of the players. Like, did he say something racist to one of the players? I'm not saying that happened. I don't know if that happened. I'm just saying I think there are probably another side to this story that would probably show that there is more fault to be had all around. But that doesn't excuse the Les Miles and Jeff Long part of this. How they handled not just the what's going on with the David Reed, Jeff Long, situation there, but how you handled this whole thing, how you handled a what seemed to be more of a legal matter in an athletic sense, not okay. How you tried to say, hey, let's just settle your differences. Oklahoma drill, pound your heads against each other. That'll help. Just a complete mess. And this just further goes to the idea that it's a good thing that KU was able to move on from less miles. And I think the more and more that comes out, we're probably going to say, you know what? This might have been kind of a a blessing in disguise that you were able to move on and get Lance Leipold, the guy who seems like a stand-up guy. Same with Travis Goff. And it just seems like the further removed we are going to get from the long miles regime, the more we're going to understand how, well, yeah, Les Miles brought in all these high school recruits, right? And he's done so much for the program and building up the roster and everything. But also with everything else that's happened that has come out, it almost seems like the biggest circus around the KU football program has occurred over these last couple months than it has even when Charlie Weiss or David Beatty or Turner Gill were here. And that's saying a lot. I hope Caperton Humphrey, I hope he's all right. The four players, yeah, you definitely shouldn't barge into somebody's house and threaten them. Stupid. Obviously, they're in the wrong for that. Obviously, they're in the wrong for some other stuff. Did Caperton Humphrey do anything that he could be in the wrong for as well that made this a two-way street? Possibly. It's not mentioned what the arguments are about. We don't know. But is there a gray area for Jeff Long and Les Miles, their handling of this? No. I don't think there is. I think that's pretty black or white. They muddled it. They messed it up. It's that simple. And I don't think any of the players who were involved in this or here anymore. That's what I've been told. 
So at the end of the day, to me, this is more about the administrators, the Les Miles and Jeff Long, than it is the players specifically. And hopefully, Travis Goff, Lance Leipold, they can kind of lead you out of this down era of KU football. I'm high on both of them, but the further we distance ourselves from this other stuff that occurred with Les Miles and Jeff Long, I think the better off KU football is going to be. We'll talk a little more KU football with Max Olson of The Athletic coming up at 4.15 here on RCST. John Thayer, the voice of the Coyotes for South Dakota, is going to join us at 4.40 as we're going to preview all of KU football's season opponents over the coming weeks. We'll talk South Dakota today. We will talk Coastal Carolina tomorrow. We'll talk Duke, rest of the conference schedule later in the week, throughout the coming weeks as well. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want to clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. We've got a new segment debuting in about 10 minutes from right now. Have that for you on the other side. Max Olson of The Athletics is going to join us at 4.15. Talk KU, college football with us. And then John Thayer, who's the voice of the South Dakota Coyotes, going to join us about a quarter till five. We're going to preview all of KU football's opponents over the coming days. So we'll have South Dakota today. We'll have Coastal Carolina tomorrow. Duke and some Big 12 opponents later on in the week. And eventually, by the time we get to mid to late July, we'll have heard from all the different teams that KU has on the schedule this year. Just kind of continuing off um, where we left things at the end of last segment, where does this leave KU now? And it just, it, it kind of makes me think like Lance Leipold being hired is not just about football this is a long-term culture fix I mean on and off the field we went over this on Friday the overachievement underachievement stuff and that's actually why we're bringing on Max Olson he wrote that in the athletic and actually shows you the KU's roster is probably a little bit better than you'd expect but they just haven't seen the wins and losses result from that but the roster you're you've been bringing in a lot of high school kids you've been bumping the scholarship numbers up and getting closer back to that 85 total. Certainly you've recruited better than the results are and you're bringing in some good transfers. Development, X's and O's, coaching decisions, those have all been questions with the previous regimes at KU. Timeouts in weird places. Delay of game on the first play of a drive. 
punting after a timeout. Just weird decisions. Schematically, not an advantage to other teams. Not as consistent of development as other teams. Those have all been questions, but those are on-field things. And while the talk of building a winning culture has been brought up every single time KU football gets a new coach, I think the culture change that we're seeing here that KU really needs to undergo is this time more just being a winning culture. It's more than teaching players correct practice habits. It's more than teaching players how to properly study film or lift weights. I guess like proper hand placements or or route running trees. It's more than all that. This is about fixing the culture of this program. Because everything that came out in that story, which again, check it out in the Kansas City Star online at KansasCity.com from Jesse Newell. Everything in that story is that this is just a toxic environment, or at least it was before Lance Leipold and Travis Goff took over. Not just for wins and losses, not just the on-field results, but overall, I don't know if one breeds the other, if you have a losing program, if that breeds some of this other stuff to occur, or if the other stuff occurring is the egg and the bad stuff on the field, the more losses than wins is the result of that. I don't know what the chicken and the egg is there. But that right there is the crux of what Lance Leipold must fix in his time at Lawrence for this to be a successful hire. Certainly winning programs have their issues. I'm not saying that the Alabamas of the world and the Ohio States or whatnot don't have stuff like this going on off the field. Bad programs have their bright spots. You know, there are a bunch of players who are going out in the community for KU football and helping with community service. There are a bunch of great players on the team who are going to graduate and maybe not play football and do other things in the community. There are bright spots and bad programs just as there are kind of blemishes on the best programs. But KU football is stuck in the mud right now. And the only thing that's making national headlines for this team over the last couple of years are those toxic stories. It's the David Beatty case, not paying him. It's the Les Miles harassment allegations. It's the Les Miles mishandling of this event with Caperton Humphrey and four other players. It's about time something positive occurred for this program. And it takes time to build culture. Certainly it will for KU. Certainly it will for Lance Leipold. But if above anything else this season, that Leipold and all the transfers he brought in from Buffalo. That's a key part of this as well. You're bringing culture over with you from Buffalo. If there is anything above anything else this season that all those people, all those players, Lance Leipold, his staff, can bring here to Lawrence, it's help fix the culture. And if he does that, I don't care about the wins and losses, the competitiveness, all that stuff. I mean, we will. We'll talk about it in and out. But if he fixes the culture... That's a success in year one, and some of those other things might come along with it. FM 1017, 1320, KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. All right, new segment debuting on the other side. About a quarter till four here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, I'm Derek Johnson. 
We're going to be joined by Max Olson in about 30 minutes from right now. We've got a new segment right now, though, to debut. It's called Case of the Mondays. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. The idea here is there's a lot of stuff that happens over the weekend. We don't always get to it. So why don't we start getting to it and bring everything back that happened over the weekend and talk about it today on your Monday. So first things first, Nigeria, a 30-point underdog, upset Team USA in an exhibition game. These are... This is just unbelievable to me. Nigeria has two wins in Olympic basketball history, and yet they beat Team USA. Again, a 30-point favorite in this game. This is a team with Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard and name your NBA star losing to... Here are the top players on Nigeria. I mean, these are guys who have been in NBA rotations, but like none of these guys are stars. Epe Yudo, remember him, former Baylor center, Precious Achua who was a first-round draft pick last year for the Miami Heat out of Memphis. Josh Okoge, uh, former first-round pick. I think he was a first-round pick for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's just kind of a rotation player. I mean, Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard losing to Epe Udo, Precious Achua, and Josh Okoge. That sounds like something that would happen in college basketball in the NCAA tournament. But for a team that once lost to USA by 83 points... This is an incredible story. Nigeria nailed 23 pointers in this game to win. Apparently, the 13 stripes on the American flag aren't representing the original colonies. They're actually there to represent Kevin Durant's 13 missed shots. He went 4 of 17 in the game. Uh, Durant and Bradley Beal combined went 5 of 24. Now, moving forward, how repeatable is that? Probably not. But I think it shows, I mean, the margin for error... For Team USA in basketball this year, maybe it's not there anymore. Maybe you can't just coast through. We see all these European stars coming over to the NBA, your Luka Doncic's of the world. It seems like things are starting to close in a little bit. And if Team USA has a bad game, all of a sudden you're getting a loss. And it's kind of a weird dichotomy where we're in right now in terms of Team USA basketball because it's like, if you win, you're supposed to do that, and we're all going to complain about the fact that, yeah, but you were supposed to win. This isn't even fun to watch because there's no competition. Like, why would I even spend time watching this? We're just going to win every game by 40 points. The flip side to this, when you lose to Nigeria, and Team USA loses really to anybody, it, this happens, is, oh, what's wrong? Like, we need to figure this out. There's obviously a problem with the program. This is ridiculous. It's like, no matter what Team USA does, it's a lose-lose. You either lose the game, and everybody's mad about it and wants to blow up the program, or you win the game, and it's just supposed to happen. It's pretty incredible, quite honestly. And I guess, salute, hats off to Nigeria. be pretty crazy if Team USA loses. I mean, you have the 0-4 team coached with Larry Brown, them losing, and I think they ended up with, like, the bronze or something like that. That was, like a black eye on Team USA basketball. And it's pretty incredible that, you know, since then they've just, oh, they'll just win everything. But, hey, maybe we're kind of trending back in that same way. Uh, the UFC happened over the weekend. First thing that happened, 
not UFC related, but also UFC related, Addison Ray, who is a singer that has blown up through her self promotion on TikTok. Um, she posted a tweet with her like on the UFC red carpet, and it said in the tweet, "I've studied broadcast journalism for three months to prepare for this." It seemed like she was going to do some like TV reporting for the UFC at the event on Saturday, which featured a Conor McGregor fight. And this got a ton of blowback, so much so that she was basically canceled. I mean, she was fired from the supposed job of whatever she was going to do with the UFC in terms of reporting TV. I don't know if she was going to like interview fighters or what the deal was there. I mean, this was incredible to watch on, on social media. If you went on like Twitter at all, you saw something about this. It was some people basically saying, hey, I studied journalism for four years in college. I've worked my tail off at jobs that don't pay very well for so long and have grinded just to get to a position where I feel comfortable today. And that's not even as good as you. And you're bragging about this. And then there's the flip side of people who are like, well, what do you mean? This is their prerogative. This is a entertainment business. If this is what they think is going to get more eyeballs and help their bottom line, who cares? Let them do it. You know where I stand on this? I don't. I don't care at all about this whole thing. I kept seeing all these people firing off their takes about this, this, and that. And that's just Twitter. You know, everybody has to pick a side on something. I'm telling you right now, you don't. You can just understand that something happened and go, ah, I get why that's happening. That'd be, you know, cool if it happened to somebody who studied longer. But also, again, it's their prerogative. Who cares? But I don't know. I Maybe that just makes me different. I'll say this, though. Uh, three months of journalism school did teach me that Oklahoma drills to fix disputes between people, not a good idea. Looking at you, Les Miles. That wasn't as bad, though, the whole Addison Ray thing as what happened to Conor McGregor, or should I say Conor McLegger? Yeah, terrible joke. Uh, he sat on the ground after the fact that Vincent Poirier basically broke his, I, I don't know what the official diagnosis was, was his ankle, his leg, it looked disgusting, looked like the ankle was basically going to like get ripped off of his leg, and then he sat on the ground after he had lost the fight basically at that point. He had the gall to yell at Poirier about his wife being in his DMs on Instagram. Really makes you wonder who won the fight. I mean, you have the guy who got physically beat up, but you also have the guy who had a major own of the other guy with his trash talk. I don't know. Who did win the fight? Oh, the answer, yes. It's still Poirier by a wide margin. Uh, baseball players yelled over the weekend. There was a lot of them. Christian Yelich got tossed by umpires. He ran through first base on a close play. He was safe. And then he kind of takes like a jab step to the left, which in MLB rules, again, if you make any move, towards second base, you are now declared as going to second base. You have to get back to first base. It was like a slight jab step to the left. It was, it didn't really look like he was going there, but I don't know. It's one of those things where you're going to get the people who are very tight over every word and a rule is the most important thing ever are going to say, yes, it was the right call. And he gets tagged, gets called out. Christian Yelich immediately screams at the umpire, basically saying, you took this away from me. Like, what the bleep, man? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He gets ejected. He was yelling. Uh, Garrett Cole, he was yelling a lot. He threw a bunch of F-bombs. Inappropriate there. Uh, Aaron Boone. 
Aaron Boone came out, wanted to pull him out of the game. He was pitching a gem against the Astros, his former team. He basically said, no, F this, F that. Got to be careful here. Don't want to hit the dump button on, like, my third day on the job here. But he was yelling, and then uh, a bunch of prospects were drafted and either yelled and screamed in celebration or people yelled and screamed that they were getting a guy or yelled and screamed at their team for not getting the guy they wanted, like Royals fans. Lots of yelling in the MLB. Catcher Henry Davis went first overall to the Pirates. Royals, at pick seven, had Brady House on the board. A lot of people liked him. Had some of the highest um, like exit velocities on hits and stuff. I, I sound super educated there. Uh, Kumar Rocker was also on the board. A guy that coming into the year, a lot of people thought of as a top, maybe even number one, but top three overall pick. Dropped a little bit due to some velocity issues over the course of the season. But a lot of people were saying, if you're Royals, if he drops to seven, slam dunk, take him right now and run. Well, they ended up taking a guy who a lot of people thought was going to go in the 20s by the name of Frank Mozzicato. If that is not the most Italian name ever, I mean, he's from Connecticut. He's got to be Italian. I don't know what is. He is a prep pitcher from Connecticut out of the high school ranks. They go with him over Kumar Rocker. Might end up being the right pick. That's the thing with the MLB. We should almost just like pre-tape all of the drafts or just like not even show them live. And like this year, we're just going to show the 2019 draft or we're just going to show the 2018 draft and be like, oh, so that's how we got this guy. And then we can remember like, okay, was that a good draft decision or was it bad? Because by the time these guys have made it through the minors and they've gone to double A and single A and triple A for four years, we forget about them. So you sometimes get an easier pass on if you made a draft flub or if you made a great pick in the draft, unless that player comes up and ends up being like a superstar and you were right next to that pick and you picked somebody else. We, we just don't remember it as much as like the NFL, for instance, when a player gets drafted and they're expected to play right away. That's completely different in the MLB. The good news, though, with Mozicato is he throws like a got a cannoli grease over his penne looking fingers. And I am done doing Italian impressions for the rest of my life. Speaking of Italy, the Italians won the Euro Cup. They downed England on their own turf in penalty kicks. It was 1-0 England. They scored in like the second or third minute. Italy eventually tied it up in the second half. Goes through extra time, stays 1-1. Italy actually got down a penalty kick, but then England missed a couple, and all of a sudden the Italian goalkeeper Donnarumma kind of stepped up. They figured it out. Side note. I want to do a let's rank stuff at some point. Most nervous moments in sports. Penalty kicks might be at the top of that list. If they're not, then they're at least in the discussion for the top of that list. I had no rooting interest, obviously, in Italy or England, but just watching it, you get a pit in your stomach. Just understand what they're going through. For not just the goalies, I think more so the guy taking the shot, because for the goalie, it's like, you know, you're just guessing one way or another. If the shot goes in, it goes in. If you make a great save, it's awesome. But if the guy kicking it misses it, we put all the blame on him. We don't give as much to the goalie unless, I guess, like, you're the guy rooting for that team. You just say the goalie's great. But a lot of times we just say the guy choked. That has got to be one of the most nerve-wracking things in sports. Uh, overall, soccer was pretty prevalent this weekend. Argentina won the Copa America, mentioned Italy winning the Euro 2020, which again, dumb that it's called 2020. U.S. playing in the Gold Cup. Just watching some of those high-level soccer matches, 
with Argentina, Brazil in the Copa America and that Italy-England game. It's not just entertaining, but I, I think it's also just a reminder watching how far out the U.S. is from some of those top teams. Sure, you've got some young stars for Team USA, but it's hard to imagine, at least in my eyes, the U.S. ever being on that stage to where Italy and England were in the Euro 2020 and being able to compete at that highest level. And you flip that over to like watching the U.S. women's national team in soccer, and it's, I mean, they're they're dominant. They, they win all the time. And it just makes me wonder, how much does football play into this? Like, because obviously there's there's no women's football. I guess there's like the, what is it, like the lingerie league or something like that. But as far as taking the top athletes away, football is at the top of American sports in the men's discussion. But for women's sports, you obviously don't have to compete with that. So is that the difference in us being good at men's soccer? It's just football. It's not even who cares about taking being seen athletes taken away from the NBA or the MLB or tennis or whatever. Is it just football? Is that the only thing holding us back from being good at soccer? It might be. I don't know. But obviously, I'm going to take American football over good soccer any day of the week. Uh, also in baseball, superstar Ronald Acuna sadly tore his ACL. He's out for the season. Big blow to one of the game's young, exciting stars. The guy perennially is around 40 home runs, 40 steals. Exciting to watch. Just a nightmarish season for the Atlanta Braves. Um, they were a win away from winning the NL pennant in 2020. They were up 3-1 to one on the Dodgers. Why don't we give them uh, as much crap as other teams blowing a 3-1 lead? But that is brutal for them, and it probably changes them from being a buyer at the trade deadline to somebody who will probably just sit pat. Uh, things that also happened that you might have been completely oblivious to over the weekend here on your Case of the Mondays. The ESPYs happened. Novak Djokovic won Wimbledon. I mowed my lawn at my house. And Derek Carr said this. You can go team up with a whole bunch of my buddies. We could have done that already, you know, and, and probably won a couple championships. But I just didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to stick it. Okay, bud. Okay. Yeah, you go team it up with a bunch of your favorite friends and go win a bunch of championships. Yep. That's definitely going to happen. All right. That's Case of the Mondays. New segment here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Max Olsen joins us in about 20 minutes. Welcome back in. Rock Chalk Sports Talk here. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017. 1320 KLWN. We talked a little on Friday about this piece in The Athletic from Max Olson looking at the biggest overachievers and underachievers in college football and how it came about. Uh, Max basically used the Massey ratings, which is an accumulation of different rating systems in college football, uh, putting these teams where they've ranked between 2017 to 2020 and looking at the recruiting classes and the 24-7 sports recruiting rankings of the players that led into those years from 2015 to 2018 and where you finished in your average ranking compared to your recruiting rankings. That's how you come up with overachievers and the underachievers. We're joined now by Max Olson of the athletic on the show. Max, thank you for joining us today. Um, being that KU was actually on the underachievers list, which I mean, you would think that would be kind of hard given the expectations for KU, but they wind up on the top 10 there. 
But then you look at the group of five overachievers, and Buffalo comes in at number three. And now KU brings on Buffalo head coach Lance Leipold. Is this kind of a perfect confluence of these two things that maybe should actually give Kansas fans hope to the idea of, well, you have a coach who has mastered overachieving, and you have a program that maybe there's a little more talent in there than you'd actually think based on them underachieving, and now this could be a perfect combination? Yeah, I think so. And I think the the fact that Lance Leipold uh, is coming back to the Midwest and is a guy that is familiar with this part of the country, and as you saw in, in, in my evaluation of kind of the big overachievers in recruiting, like seven or eight out of ten of the, of the best of the best of the Power Five level were Midwestern programs, whether that's K-State and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 or, or Iowa State, or, or then you've got a bunch in the Big 10. So this part of the country, um, there are a lot of programs that have a real identity, and it's around player development. It's not you know chasing big recruits out of California and Florida and Texas and stuff like that and trying to get ahead that way. It's, it's owning your region and having a, a real blueprint and identity that you can uh, be consistent about. And that's what Buffalo did uh, under Lance Leipold, uh, you know, by – by this measure, I was looking at uh, 2015 through 2018 recruiting because those are the classes that kind of uh, your, your 2017 through 2020 teams are made up of. Um, you know, by those standards, Buffalo in, in the 24-7 uh, metrics, and look, 24-7, it's, it's not their job to look very, very closely at who Buffalo's signing or, or rate all of those guys. But according to 24-7, Buffalo was one of the worst in the country when it came to actual, like, uh, re- recruiting uh, star talent. And so – you take that and, and, and are still very, very successful at Buffalo uh, with those players and develop some real NFL players and, and a real program there. And so, you know, I think that, uh, I think that, that Lance Leifold and his staff, it's going to take time, but I think they're going to recruit Kansas the right way. And I think we've seen with a couple different coaching staffs, there's definitely a wrong way to recruit Kansas that uh, has put them in this big of a hole. Yeah, and you bring up a good point with all the Midwest teams at the top, and you know I think it was three of the top seven that were just in the Big 12 alone, not even counting some of the Big 10 Midwestern schools with Iowa State at number one um, as kind of the highlight there. What do you think there is going on in this area that leads to maybe this being more plausible? Is it just the fact that maybe some of these recruits are being – under evaluated is it just a culture thing is it just they just happen to have good coaches what do you value most that you think has led to some of those midwestern schools being big overachievers yeah it's a, it's a good question i think the programs we're talking about here are you know in, in the big 10 iowa wisconsin northwestern and then in the big 12 iowa state Oklahoma state kansas state and i think some of the things you see in common there um certainly uh, continuity and coaching uh, programs that, that have an identity, that, that they know what they are. They've been doing it for, you know, four, five, six years, or, or maybe even, you know, 10 years plus, you know, plus. I mean, I think uh, that, that makes a big difference when, and, and certainly programs like Iowa um, and Iowa State have done a great job of, of finding the guys like, you know, George Kittle or Tristan Wirfs or Brees Hall or whatever, finding those guys, evaluating them. And, and winning those recruitments and, and keeping those kids home. I think that's so important um, to these programs. And, and, you know, I think Kansas, the, the, what we've seen in Ames, I think should encourage anybody to believe that, yeah, it's going to take a long time to dig out of this hole, but that Kansas can do this too in time if they have the right coach, if they have the right culture, if they can kind of keep that coach and keep building it and building it, um, you know, and, and have some patience. I, I think there's uh, the proof in that. And, and, Look, I think we've seen this offseason, too. 
yes, it was less miles and the staff recruiting at a little bit higher level. They were, but as soon as things hit the fan, all those guys transferred, right? And, that, and that's, that's kind of like, that, that's the problem today is that it, it, it can be very easy to leave, especially when you're losing at a place like Kansas. So you have to get guys there and you have to keep them and you have to develop them into three, four year guys and, uh, and, and really have that buy-in that um, you guys are going to do it the right way. Yeah, and I guess that leads to the other side of things with the underachieving aspect of it. What do you kind of attribute to being the most important factors into why teams underachieve? Is it the coaching, the X's and O's, the schematics? Is it the development? I mean, what is it? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest – so the biggest underachiever in this, this study among Power Five was Arkansas, and that's a case of a program that, that recruits at a top 30 level and really just kind of bottomed out under Chad Morris and his two years there, and that's why they were the worst. I think Florida State probably you would call the biggest underachiever just from the standpoint of it's a, a program that recruits at a top five level and recently won a national championship, and so it never should have gotten as bad as it, as it has since Jimbo Fisher left there. Um, and, and they're one of the big underachievers just based on how good you know, they were at the top of the mountaintop there and, uh, and, and tripped and fell off. But, um, you know, I, I think when you look at Kansas, like, it's not very surprising that they'd be among the underachievers just based on the system I did here where, you know, if they're one of the worst teams in the, in the country uh, between Power Five and, and, and Group of Five combined, and you're still, you know, recruiting at a top, you know, 50, 60, 70 level, then, yeah, you're going to be a big underachiever. Um, so they, they, if they can get back to four, five, six wins, um, you know, in time under Leifold, then I, I don't think they will be uh, that bad of an underachiever. But the, the, the consistent thing among these programs struggling with this, and, and Kansas is too, is just uh, consistency and, and, and uh, having a staff that, that stays. You know, I think that the, the turmoil that comes with multiple coaching changes in a short period of time, the number of players that leave your program, uh, just the, the big reset you have to go through every time that happens uh, can definitely throw a program off course. We're talking with Max Olson. You can check out all his great work in The Athletic. One of the things you mention in the piece is that with 24-7 sports, you can't really look into some of the transfers that are going in and out. And as you mentioned, yeah. some of those players leaving Kansas, which that's another piece that Max uh, worked on the top 100 transfer list in college football. You know, you have guys like Karan Prunty and Marcus Harris on there who aren't just leaving the program. They're going to brighter spots, whether it's Virginia Tech for Prunty or yep. some SEC schools in these other cases. Now, on the flip side, Kansas did bring in some transfers um, as well, some guys coming over from Buffalo. Uh, do you kind of view that as becoming the new uh, estimator for what a team can and can't build up to with some of these, I guess, first-time transfers being able to go wherever they want? It's basically, I would imagine, going to add a new wrinkle into these recruiting rankings. Do you think we're going to see stories of, teams who basically become you know good or better than what their program already is just based on kind of hitting the transfer portal as we've seen in college basketball yeah absolutely and i think um one thing that's a little bit challenging when you do these kind of assessments is right now uh 24 7 does not count the transfers that you picked up in a class um as as you know part of your your class ranking and i, I think that needs to change because we certainly are seeing right now there are programs that are looking at the landscape right now and saying, maybe we should sign like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 transfers a year, you know? And I think that's going to legitimately happen here, especially with the one-time transfer rule and the ability to 
you know, sort of treat this like NFL transactions to say, hey, here's our need. Let's go. Let's go pick somebody up and, and you know, plug in a veteran uh, in a starting role and stuff like that. Uh, you know, in the past, we've talked about transfers more in terms of who are, you know, the really impactful quarterbacks and stuff. But, you know, it's way different now. It's, it's every position. And, and, you know, there's hundreds of really talented players making moves every year. So, so yeah, I think uh, for Kansas, you have to uh, embrace that and, at least to, to as, as a tool to making your team better in the short term. And I, and I think that uh, credit to the staff for uh, having some, some players that uh, from Buffalo who wanted to come with them. I think those guys will be kind of culture carriers that, that come with you and, and help set the tone that here's how we did things at Buffalo. Here's why we were so successful. And, and the stuff you've been doing here at Kansas, is just isn't going to cut it. And so I think that makes a big difference. I, I don't think we're going to see, like big groups of players following coaches all over the country or anything like that. But in this case, kind of a rare instance with the timing and all that, uh, I think that was a great move by Kansas. And, and yeah, they have an opportunity to uh, embrace this because that's a school that can offer you playing time. Max Olson on The Athletic, I'll leave you with one last question. Now that the college football playoff, eventually, whenever it'll get instituted, will be 12 teams. If I gave you over under .5 college football playoff appearances for KU football – in the next 30 years, what are you taking? <laughs> well, you know, we, we can't say it's impossible because we all saw the Orange Bowl. That happened. That yeah. was a real thing that happened. It wasn't even it. that long ago that it happened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, what, one thing that I, when that news hit that I, I went through and, and studied this was, you go back and look at the last 10 years um, and just what the 12-team playoff would have looked like each of these last 10 seasons. And the number of, of teams that get it into the playoffs at least one time was 44. So, like, the representation is going to totally change. Um, I think, I think in, in order for that to hit the over, I almost feel like the Big 12 has got to change a little bit. Like, I feel like you have to get back to the way it was before where Kansas could just win the North and, and have a chance to get to the, the conference title game that way. Because the way it's set up now at the round robin, I think that makes it super, super hard. Uh, for Kansas to, to climb on top and win the league. But, uh, yeah, over over 30 years, like, I, I, I can't say it's impossible. Yeah, I, I looked back last week, and I think uh, if you go back through the AP poll, which I think is like 1939, which that is different than the college football playoff rankings, obviously. Yeah. But I think they would have made it based on the AP poll four times in about 80-whatever years, which is about one in every 20 years. So if you give me 30 years, maybe I'll take it. But I agree with you because – you look at some of those other over or underachievers on that list. When you mention Arkansas, Vanderbilt's right by Kansas. Sometimes it's more about you just need a program to fall off for you to jump up as well. But who knows? Thank you for the time, Max. That is Max Olson. You can check out all his great work. Subscribe to The Athletic. Max, have a good rest of your day. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks so much. All right, that is Max Olson of The Athletic joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. About 20 till 5 here on RCST. I'm Derek Johnson here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN and KLWN.com. KU's week one opponent, South Dakota. And that comes up in, what, eight or nine weeks from uh, this Friday, Friday night football game there. Uh, A little reminiscent of some high school football. We're joined now by John Thayer, who is the play-by-play voice for the South Dakota Coyotes. John, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm sure it was a very odd past season for South Dakota and yourself 
and then obviously moving things to the spring for the FCS, and then the team has their last four games all canceled. What was kind of learned from the team in this odd spring season that we can take away into the fall about South Dakota Coyotes? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to talk to you. You know, it, it was weird. It was it was strange because you go into, you know, we started the pandemic in uh, March of that year, 2020, and, and I, I don't know about you, but to me, I didn't think it was going to affect football. And, uh, boy, was I wrong. You know, we get closer and closer, and all of a sudden they move the spring championship to the – or they move the championship to the spring season. And then you wondered how many teams would play. Some opted out. Some played. USD tried to get its uh, games in. They ended up with a, a just a conference-only schedule of eight games and had the first one actually postponed to start the year. And that's just kind of the vibe that it, it ended up being for them. And then they played four games, and after that um, they had the final three – got canceled and then the one that was pushed from the opening week to the very end of the season that ended up that team ended up opting out for the remainder of the season as well so lost that one so it was really tough i think it was really hard on uh you know these student athletes and and coaches they put in the work a couple of games one of them was canceled the morning of the game about uh probably four or five hours before kickoff uh, that we found out that that game was not going to happen. Uh, one of the other games was canceled the, the night before it was supposed to be played. And so, uh, you know, you, you put in the work all week, and um, then all of a sudden you don't have the games. And I think it, it got pretty frustrating. It got really tough for these guys. But on the positive side of it, you know, four games, what can you take out of four games? Well, you can take that there's a lot of players that have the ability and the talent certainly to be uh, real players for the next four years at USD and those guys got the opportunity to get on the field and talking about a true freshman quarterback to get him onto the field and actually experience game action you know and a couple other guys uh, certainly that was huge and and I think that that will help those guys I think it helps them going into the off season that they just are going through or getting into and uh, getting into the fall camps here soon and and I think it'll really help them coming into the fall season so a lot of there were positives to take away of it it was a tough season uh usd played four games went one and three uh really had a tough schedule the way it lined up they played on a saturday for their first one and then we're on the road again um on that next thursday so it was a really tough uh, back-to-back to start and it just kind of you know piled on from there so we'll hope to take some of those positives from the spring and hopefully it uh, carries over into this fall season and and uh have a good year for usd do you think that it might end up being kind of a, a blessing in disguise, so to speak, that they had those last four games canceled just moving forward? Because I, I would imagine the team's going to be a little bit more fresh than they would have been had they played the full slate in the spring now into the fall. Well, I think you can look at it a couple of different ways. You know, for you know a team like USD, sure, they, they were able to be more fresh. But you got to remember, they were still game planning for two of those weeks that were canceled and so that was a little bit tough so they get into the offseason and I think just mentally it was really really hard for them you know these guys had uh they'd gone through their entire fall camp before they found out that the uh, season was going to be pushed to the spring and then they get their season opener spring opener pushed back and I think it's just really hard mentally um but you could take some positives from that the other side of it is uh, you know the in-state rival South Dakota State they played for the national championship in the spring and they had uh, a lot of attention on them so as far as uh bodies 
bodies and, and the, the recovery and some of that. Sure. I think uh, some of that could be a benefit for USD, but uh, I think, you know, we would have liked to see a few more games and uh, see these guys, some of these guys who don't have a lot of game experience, get out on the field and, and be able to play and, and understand it, uh, just the game speed a little bit more. It's something you can't simulate in practice as much. Yeah, and so you mentioned, you know, the true freshman quarterback and whatnot and trying to get more experience, but how experienced is this South Dakota team in comparison to maybe some other South Dakota teams of years past or kind of compared to maybe some other teams around the country? Yeah, I think you look at it as uh, in, it's it's kind of a position-by-position position thing, you know, like the quarterback position, Carson Camp is a true freshman, completed 63% of his passes in the four games played in the uh, fall, at times looked good, at times was uh, running for his life because of a young and, and kind of banged-up offensive line, and they've got an offensive line group that's still fairly young, but it's a group that has some game experience, so they really need to, uh, you know, step up and, and play like more veteran guys uh, this year. I think they're deepest position and maybe their most uh, experienced on the entire football team. A uh, couple of them. One of them certainly is linebacker in the secondary. They've got some real talent there with guys like Jakari Starling and Brock Mogensen and Jack Cochran. And uh, even at the wide receiver position, maybe not as deep as what they've been in years past, but certainly a very talented bunch when they stay healthy. Um, guys like Carter Bell and, and, um, uh, Caleb Vanderash and some of those guys can really Cody Case when he's healthy uh, is is a tremendous talent and then they're really experienced at the uh, safety position so I think uh, you know it's kind of a mixed bag right now and some of them you look at like defensive line I'm not real sure what uh, USD has there I know that there's some excitement about what they have there but it's uh, a lot of names a handful of them that'll play or guys that we haven't seen a whole lot of so really is a uh, you know kind of a mixed bag going into the season and it'll be fun to see these guys uh, play it out we're talking with John Thayer the voice of the South Dakota Coyotes or Coyotes excuse me that'll uh That'll get me in trouble with uh, people in South Dakota. But um, on both sides of the ball, how, how would you describe the scheme or, I guess, the style of play that uh, the Coyotes use? Yeah, you know, offensively, it's always been more of an up-tempo kind of offense. They want eight or nine wide receivers ready to go so that they can run guys onto the field. And they do a lot of spread uh, offense formations. They'll throw the ball out of the backfield to or to the running backs out of the backfield, things like that. Um, not not really a ground and pound offensive scheme. They do like to throw it around a little bit, and uh, they play at a very fast tempo. Uh, this will be a, a different year because Carson Camp, the projected starter for South Dakota, he doesn't run as well as what the last two quarterbacks have at USD. Guys like Chris Strebler, who's now with the Arizona Cardinals, and Austin Simmons, who's playing in the Canadian Football League. Those guys could really get out and run as uh, as, as a quarterback and get themselves out of trouble. And Carson's a better pocket passer and doesn't uh, run quite as well as those guys. So they'll still uh, try to get to the up tempo. They don't run a lot of. Uh, they don't huddle up a whole lot. Um, it's uh, get to the line and um, get the plays from the sidelines. And a lot of football, uh, a lot of football uh, teams are going to going that route. And then defensively, it's kind of called a positionless defense, and it's kind of funny to say, kind of 
uh, strange to hear or say, but um, they really like to lock some of the linebackers up on the line, and they'll play with uh, two, maybe three big interior defensive linemen up front at different times, and lock some of those linebackers up as kind of more of a rush end type of uh, type of backers, and uh, really throw a lot of different uh, schemes defensively, trying to confuse the offense. So it's just a little bit different defense. It's taken a couple of years uh, with Travis Johansson as the defensive coordinator. He's just been around USD the last couple of seasons and, um, you know, really taking a little bit of time for the defense to settle into what he wants to do. So this should be a, a fun fall to see how they've, uh, how they've all come together. Do you think, if you had to guess right now, the offense or the defense will be more of the calling card for the team this year? You know, I, I think it's I think it's going to be offense. I think you're going to have to score points. I think uh, when you look at it, there's a lot of talent. You look at uh, the running back position with, you know, a guy from from the state of Kansas who's going to get a lot of carries for USC this year. And Travis Tice, he's a tremendous running back, and um, he's got a chance to be really good. I think he can help. They've just got to get that offensive line shored up, and they've got some talent there, certainly. Uh, they do that. They've got a chance to really score some points because I'm telling you, they've got some electrifying wide receivers and some real playmakers. So hopefully uh, this is the year we see it all come together. I think the defense is going to be really good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I do think the offense is going to need to score a lot of points and uh, should be fun to see. Obviously, KU played South Dakota back in 2013, and that one ended 31-13. to has South Dakota fared well in other matchups against past FBS opponents? You know, it depends on the on the the level. You know, it was just a couple of years ago, I think, uh, that it was that um, we went down to Kansas State, and I really felt like USD should have won that football game. It was a game in which USD controlled, and K State got a. I think it was in the third quarter, got a punt return for a touchdown that. Um, it really kind of changed all the momentum and you just can't have that momentum shift when you're the underdog FCS team and it shifted in a big way. You know, the last FBS team that uh, we played was at number four, Oklahoma. That's a very tough place to play. And as you know, that's a, that's a pretty good football program. And so for a team like South Dakota to go there and, and be competitive, um, you know, that's a very difficult one. That one with at K-State was in uh, 2018, but you know, they've got a, they, their last FBS win came against Bowling Green, so a little bit different out of the MAC. You know, it's different than a Power Five team, and they played teams like New Mexico and Oregon, and so they played some tough opponents. Uh, but they really like these regional opponents. Got KU this year, K State again next year. I think Missouri, Wisconsin, and Iowa State are all on schedule for USD. So really like the regional footprint. Um, you know, really out of the recruiting base is is part of it. And give these kids a chance. There's eight eight players on USD's roster from the state of Kansas, and so give them the opportunity to. Um, you know, play football games in their home state. And I know a lot of these guys get really excited for it. I'm always curious from the other side of things, uh, what kind of the feeling is about, oh, we're going to get Kansas in week one, given that, you know, it obviously hasn't been the most successful program over the last decade. They've lost three times to FCS opponents. Is there a bit of sense of almost like a shark sensing blood in the water from the South Dakota side? kind of thinking that well i mean if if we're to get an fcs win or an fbs win this has been a team who's shown the ability to to drop some of those games is there a bit of that sense from uh things up up north 
You know, I think the approach is more of you just go into the game with – you go into every game preparing like you're going to win a football game, whether you're against Oklahoma or Kansas or Bowling Green, whoever it is. And you just want to see a lot of good things out of your football team. You know, and, and when you go play a team like Kansas, um, you know, they've obviously gone through some changes. There'll be some excitement around that program with a new head coach, a guy who really has the, has the uh, coaching record and uh, in, in kind of history to – maybe get Kansas back to where they were when they went to the Orange Bowl and some of that stuff. But, um, you know, I think you look at it, you know, the other thing, This is we're talking about, uh, what is it, 20, uh, 22 or 23 scholarship difference between FBS and FCS. So uh, at the end of the day, you're still playing with less scholarships. You're still playing as the underdog, and you just got to go play a football game, and you're playing it on the road. Um, and so every road game is, is very difficult to go to, and I think you just get excited to play a team like uh, Kansas, uh, not not to just be not, not not because it's a team that has struggled in recent years, but just because it's it's an opportunity to uh, see these guys play a game at a place they haven't played a whole lot at, and a lot of go play at KU, and so we'll see. I think they'll prepare as if they believe they can win the football game, and we'll see how things play out. Hopefully, it's a it's a good football game on a Friday night, and and uh, we'll see how things uh, work out in that one. Yeah, any any football game at this point is a good game with me. John, thank you so much for the time. He's John Thayer, voice of South Dakota Coyotes. I appreciate you coming on, and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, that's John Thayer, the voice of the South Dakota Coyotes, joining us here on Rock Truck Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. The thing that I found most interesting, a couple things. One, the fact that they play an up-tempo offense. I think that's going to be interesting. Um for KU because you're going to be tested right out the gates with what your defense can provide. And we know how much they lost on that end, just between the transfers on the defensive line and Karan Prunty in the secondary, they've got some new players at the corner positions. That's going to be kind of tested there. The other thing that I thought was interesting um, that John talked about was it sounds like they're a little greener in terms of uh, less experience on the front four on the defensive side or, or however many defensive linemen they play, as well as the offensive front with the offensive line, which means it should be an opportunity for KU. You have a bunch of guys, whether they are transfers coming into the program, guys trying to improve on a season from a year ago, maybe breakout stars or new incoming freshmen for KU, whoever plays on the offensive and defensive line. It sounds like it's a chance for them to kind of impose their will on South Dakota, and if you can't do it against South Dakota, a team who, again, it sounds like they're a little more inexperienced on the offensive and defensive lines, then it's probably going to be tough sledding the rest of the way. So that's probably the early thing I'm circling to say. KU has to dominate on the line of scrimmage, not just because that's a good recipe to win any football game, but also because if you can't do it against a team who's at the FCS level, who doesn't have as much experience there, then it's probably going to be a tough hill to climb the rest of the way in that regard. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. 